Welcome to Season 6 of the Do More Good podcast, a selection of interviews with the movers and shakers from the third sector and beyond, telling the stories of people doing more good. I'm James, fundraiser at Blood Cancer UK, Marie Curie and now a Sue Rider. I'm also treasurer of the Events Fundraising Group of the CIOF and Bexley Cross Country Champion 1994. And I'm Kenneth, Global Head of Commercial and Fundraising at Parkrun, previously of London Marathon Events and Alzheimer's Research UK and father of three football-obsessed children and best mate to my dog, Kobe. You're listening to the Do More Good podcast. The Do More Good podcast. Uh, welcome to Do More Good podcast. Do good, do more. Do more good podcast. Do more good podcast. That's what you want me to say. Yeah, you're okay. listening. You're listening to the Do More Good podcast. Right, here we are, James, back again. It's the Do More Good podcast, and it is episode 98. How are you doing? Kenneth. I'm very well, thank you. Very well. It's nice to see you on my screen after a little break. You see you've got a uh, new hair, new haircut for the new job. <laughs> not not quite just for the for the new job you know it's it's quite um good hygiene to keep your hair well groomed but yeah uh no it is a little while isn't it it's been a, yeah. it's been a few weeks since we recorded an episode and yeah it's been all change in the uh foreman household and we've just been reminded kindly by our guests that we need to update a few things around the podcast because <laughs> it still explicitly says wrong information but yeah I've started a new job yeah and how's it going how are you how do you what is Kenneth Foreman the new kid like because okay. I've seen you, uh, you know, you with your old work colleagues when you're firmly established and you, you know, you can get away with things. I want to see you on best behaviour. What's that like? Oh, I'm, I'm very professional, James, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, <laughs> I'm hopefully, a few of my new colleagues will be will be listening and tuning in. But yeah, started a new job four or five weeks ago now, working for Parkrun Global. So you must have yeah. done a few part runs in your time, James. I have. You must have I taken have. on that junior part run on a two <laughs> k. Do you know what I have? I have. I've done the. There's the Greenwich Park run just around the corner here. Mm-hmm. So I've done that a few times, and I got down to quite a good time on that one, and I was finishing quite high up, and I managed to beat the 15 year old girl that kept beating me. And then I thought, <laughs> and then I then I retired, just immediately, just left, didn't go back. So it's been a little while since I did one, but yes, I have done them, and I've and. I have volunteered at a local junior one as well. So, yeah, it's so nice. I love it. I love Parkrun. It's brilliant. Mate, it's been absolutely amazing. Like, you know, when you know an organisation from the outside and you kind of see the work and, you know, you read a few things, but you don't kind of deep dive into it. I think getting into Parkrun and just seeing how operationally it works, the amazing people, the volunteers and the ambassadors that kind of give up their time, the people that take part every week, the volunteering volunteers themselves who take part every week and just how like inclusive and brilliant a concept it is and I've spoken about it before remember when we were in so it must have been three or four years ago when we went out to Amsterdam and I did the Iwitot on the oh of course I wish I thought of yeah, that yeah, on Parkrun yeah. so it's amazing how it comes around but yeah did you so recycle for... that for your interview is that basically <laughs> I what you did <laughs> I should have um but no it's amazing how it comes around and yeah sort of five weeks in just kind of getting to know the team and getting to know how everything works and and meeting everybody and yeah just really really excited for the future but they're, and they're yet to know you they get to know the true Kenneth Foreman they've just seen you on as we said on your best behavior exactly. what, a, what a delight for them as they get know. to know you a little bit more eh wow. I know, I know. they are they are lucky no but I'm the lucky one there's some brilliant brilliant people so yeah what about you what have you been up to the last few weeks since we um exchanged well, it's, um, it's been a quite a sports heavy weekend in the right household and I'm quite pleased because I was at London Marathon yesterday you know doing the kind of seven hours on the cheer point and my voice has recovered there was a point <laughs> there was a point at about six o'clock yesterday where I thought I'm in trouble here because my voice is totally gone luckily fortunately I did go for a couple of beers as is tradition after the London Marathon uh, to do that so uh, it came back midway through the pub yeah uh, unfortunately yeah yeah so it's been quite yeah but north london derby this weekend my kids are big cyclists so we went cycle we went to training and racing on saturday and went to see the basketball the copper box london lions we're becoming big london lions fans because my, my youngest loves basketball good for you i don't, don't know where it came from she just loves it so uh, we go and watch that on a friday night and wasn't the marathon amazing like i, it, I like i said we were talking about before we started recording that I watched it in bed for the first time in eight years. Mm. I could actually sit down on the Sunday morning and actually take in the BBC footage. And and obviously I was keeping in touch with, you know, ex-colleagues and friends and it just seemed to go out, go perfectly. And, and just the people on the streets, again, I think they're kind of talking about, 
new record numbers and I think it just gives a real feel-good feeling that the marathon always brings you know back to London puts charities in the spotlight once again just yeah with all the negativity around I think it's such a such a great 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 day yeah yeah Yeah. with the exception of park park runs it's the best day of the year Absolutely. Every Saturday and Sunday is the best days of the year, of course. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyway, look, we've we've rabbled on long enough. Let's jump in with the introduction. I'm really excited about today's actually. It's a bit of a slightly off piece in terms of a, a new area of fundraising that we've never really covered. And we've covered quite a few over 100 episodes. So we'll get into it. So this week on the podcast, we're joined by the chief executive of The Funding Network, a London-based charity that connects small nonprofits and donors. Following an, an early career in PR and sponsorship in Australia, a guest has gone on to have a long and successful career, all with a focus on making positive change. Through its delivery of live crowdfunding events, TFN has raised over £70 million for more than 2,350 non-profit organisations. Her guest has played a key role in exporting the live crowdfunding model across the world, including to Australia and New Zealand. Previously, our guest led 1010, an ambitious environmental campaign, and prior to which she founded the campaign We Are What We Do, which published the best-selling book Change the World for a Fiver and produced the anti-plastic bag shopper I'm Not a Plastic Bag in partnership with Anya Hindmarch. She has also been the director of the Frederick Mulder Foundation with a funding focus around the threat of climate change, the persistence of global poverty and the development of social change philanthropy. Now, in her spare time, she's a proud yogi, and so we're really pleased to welcome Eugenie Harvey to the Do More Good podcast. Hi, oh, Eugenie. Thank you, Kenneth. What a beautiful introduction and a beautiful <laughs> pronunciation of my name. Thank you so much. And um, I thought you were going to touch on it. I'm so glad it's disappeared from my biog now, which it bloody well should have because it was such a long time ago. Her stand-up comedy career, her uh. short-lived stand-up comedy career is sometimes uh, included, but this, it was so short-lived it doesn't even bear any further exploration other than that anyway it's lovely <laughs> to be here and you can be assured there won't be any jokes because oh. as my flatmate said come, having come to see my stand-up debut oh but you were so funny at home <laughs> so I keep my humor <laughs> oh um Eugenie that's very interesting because it leads us on nicely to the to the first question which is can you tell us a little bit more about your stand-up comic career how <laughs> <laughs> Fortuitous, how prescient of you to ask that question. No, I did have that um, experience, which I think quite a few failed stand-up comedians have, of being really funny after a couple of beers with your mates and really enjoying holding court and, you know, the one-liners flowing fast and it being very, very natural and then having the foolishness to listen to people who say, no, you're really, really funny. No, no, you are. No, you are. You're so funny. And then, you know, your, your ego gets the better of yourself and you start thinking, you know what, I am pretty fun. I'm pretty, f- I am funny. Yep, that's me. I'm the funny <laughs> one, right? And the so next thing you know, you're doing tryouts and um, probably spending a little bit too much time thinking about what you're going to wear for the tryout and not enough time about what you're going to say. Mm. And uh, all your friends turn up and sitting in the front row looking at you eagerly and you die. I mean, I didn't just wow. die, I died 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 it was the death of my ego it was the death of me it was a death of, of so many things but wow. I have said <clears throat> since that it was the best thing that ever happened to me because you know it was a bit of a monkey on my back for a long time it was something you know I you know I was very interested in performing and I did think that that would be a really you know that I was funny and people told me and it sort of was hanging behind me for a long time and it sort of was an impediment because I, I kind of always had this idea that Life wouldn't start until my stand-up comedy career began. And then when it died in a sort of five-minute tryout <laughs> slot, but several five-minute tryout slots, um, then I could kind of get on with life. And I've got on with it ever since and done things that are much more useful to the world, I think. And, um, you know, it was a very liberating moment, but also deeply galling. Oh, good, for, good for you for giving it a go. Fair I was going to say, James, sound, sounded like your uh, stand-up comedy uh, <laughs> career didn't it what was it uh, I, I um I tended to die in the pub let alone getting on stage uh, you know way before maybe. yeah I did that a few times too yeah, yeah. oh yeah. well that was a slight different ang- tangent than what we were expecting but it's that's what absolutely what we're all about before, before we do crack on with you know what the second question might be planned mm-hmm. to be I just wanted to say um park run 
Um, I'm so glad to hear you talk about that because I think it is one of the most brilliant engagement, kind of everything good. But I just think the way it balances off volunteerism with a really cool digital platform, with a highly replicable model, with obviously the benefits of to our health and the use of the natural resources and parks. And, you know, it's just, it's so clever and brilliant. And, you know, I've admired it for years. I take part in it occasionally in our own one. Um, and it's just a beacon of goodness in, in our communities, I think. Um, and I, I just, I can't, be more positive about an initiative almost almost in the whole, whole of the UK. You know, I think it is a UK initiative too because it's all spread around the world now, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're in a number of countries across Europe, North America, um, Australia, New Zealand. And yeah, as you say, it's just a, a beacon of goodness. I like that description because, you know, working in charities, as I'm sure, you know, you have and, and James has, you know, you, you you occasionally get those case studies that come through from someone who's supporting the charity and you read it and you're just like, wow, I'm super inspired. That keeps me going, what you do. You just have to look on Twitter at the weekend and just see people who are part running and just hear the absolutely amazing stories. And, and it's not just about the part run. It's about the knock-on effect of what that part run actually does to that person's life. And, you know, I think that's... Um, yeah, that it's 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 inspiring, brilliant, and everything, everything. And I think that need to belong, which you know, I'm yeah. kind of segueing um, into talking about what I do, which is around connecting. And I think that sense of connection and that sense of being part of something bigger than yourself, of sharing aspirations, and you know, things that matter to you with other people. I just think it's priceless in this day and age, and you know, in the real world, as opposed to you know. Facebook friends or the sort of social media world where we are all becoming more and more connected and that's more the norm. I think these real life opportunities for connection and engagement are just so vital. So, and you're connected with people across the whole country. It's not just the people you run with. It's the people who are saying, oh yeah, I do, you know, and we've got a lovely friend here who, when he goes traveling on holiday, he always goes and does the park runs. Great, he does park run tourism. So yeah, big man. Sorry, James, I didn't mean to take over this podcast talking about the new job and part run and all that, but, <laughs> you know, it's kind of happened. Eugenie, we'll go back to, to the start and jump into these questions because, mm-hmm. as, as we said in the introduction, I think you've got a really interesting background and and the funding network and what it stands for and what it does is a really interesting model. You know, for, for James and I that have probably got, you know, 15, 20 years of fundraising experience between us, mm-hmm. having never come really across this type of model before, it's kind of nice to see something new. But just before we kind of get into that, I just guess want to go back to the start and we talked about you know you started off in in sponsorship and and PR in Australia where did the kind of first ignition come to you in terms of a move into kind of social change and becoming a change maker how did that happen? I I think I always had a sort of affinity with those who are excluded or on the outside which I've now learned is all of us and the great thing about being on the outside is you are not on the outside you're with everybody but um, when I was younger and like I think a lot of people you feel on the margins or excluded or for some reason different and um, you know that experience had a lasting impact on me and led me to want to do something for people who had that experience um, recognizing that I was incredibly fortunate to have a really good education to have family behind me to have good health you know to be born in Australia to be white to have a whole lot of natural advantages which notwithstanding for various reasons I you know I did as I say feel different and they were really profound and and real reasons they weren't I don't want to minimize them but um I also recognized that I had a lot of very positive things so um you know as I got a bit older a bit more confident overcame some of those issues I um started my career I did a communications degree started my career at um the Sydney Theatre Company being in PR there and then I moved into um, pay television. I worked for Rupert Murdoch in his pay TV company in Australia during its sort of startup. And my dad's British and I had a British passport. And I thought when I turned about 30, I'll jump on a plane and just try and shake things up. I, I wanted to move into you know, volunteer. Well, I didn't even know the terms for it. I didn't come from a um, family that was involved in charity or voluntary or any of that. You know, it was quite a sort of slight embarrassment, I think, to some of my family members when I 
wanted to be a do-gooder and, you know, it's quite a thing to overcome that sort of idea of, well, why do I want to do this? What What is it in me? What's motivating me? But anyway, I just came to London and, you know, um, within 30 seconds was doing exactly what I did back in Australia for a lot less money, you know, without any friends. Um, I got a job working for the Australian Tourist Commission over here um, in PR. It was couldn't have been less where I wanted to be. But that led me to another job, which led me to another job. And I finally met someone, interestingly, through um, a big corporate job that I had. I met a guy called David Robinson who um, founded and ran a brilliant charity in East London called Community Links, which is incredibly highly regarded in sort of community development um, sector. And uh, he came and gave a talk at the company I was working at, and he said he was looking for volunteers and they needed volunteers to help people um, navigate the benefit system. And they were often working with people who had um, English as a, you know, well, not even a second language. They didn't have English. They didn't have the skills they needed to complete these incredibly difficult forms. And they just needed someone, to, well, people to sit next to these people and go through the benefits forms and fill them in. So they would answer the questions and you would write it in. And, I, you know, I went and did that a bit for community links at Canning Town in East London. And, you know, I just had this real perspective shift, which is that things that I take for granted, reading, writing, you know, being able to navigate complex documents um, are actually incredibly sort of valuable, potentially life-changing skills if deployed in the right way. And I just got a sense that the skills I had, which were largely communicate, well, well, only communications, they actually were useful. I thought you had to have done you know, an international development degree, you had to have done sort of, you know, and I think that's a bit of a mistake that, that, that well, maybe people don't make it anymore. But, you know, the, the sector that we work in benefits from the most broad range of skills and experiences. And, and you know, we can always find a way of deploying them. Mm. Um, so yeah, so I and, and then David and I started this thing, as, which was called We Are What We Do, and was really quite successful. And you know, we published this book and it was about trying to get lots of people to do small things to change the world. And in some respects, we're a bit ahead of our time because, you know, we were saying turn the tap off when you clean your teeth and, you know, smile at people in the street and don't put your chewing gum on the pavement and give blood. And it's, you know, and it was kind of a revelation at the time, but it's sort of, and it did really well. And we did this beautiful book, which a whole lot of people contributed to, but you know, I see that kind of communication, this is now 20 years later, and it's still being, you know, these single small things. And, you know, I moved on a long time ago. And I'm like, oh, my God, we need system change, system change. <laughs> but our theory of change was, and I stand by that, that until, you know, you get a large groundswell of people behaving in a, in a certain way, and that's the value of small actions and small, you know, putting out the recycling and all that. When they become the norm, when we send a message to policymakers and politicians, this is what matters to us, this is the world we want to live in, we're demonstrating it, you know, the temperature changes and policy will follow. And so I totally stand by the need to galvanise people in behaviours which, yeah, change the temperature and, and then big decisions will follow. But I am now interested in systemic change um, about how you engage ordinary people in it, how you give people the opportunity to participate meaningfully in the world that they want to see, we yeah. want to see. Yeah, I remember the book. I'm sure I bought the book or somebody bought the book for me. Yeah, I remember it well. Uh, it's a, a shame. People it say to me, oh, was it, it was in our toilet. We had it in our toilet for a long time. <laughs> I was in the downstairs loo. Oh, great. <laughs> Not such a bad place to be. Not a bad place yeah. to be. Very, very well read. We, and we did another one, which is called Teach Your Granny to Text, which was 50 Actions to for Children to Do to Change the World. That was a great one. And, um, yeah, and then we did the Anya Hindmarch, I'm Not a Plastic Bag Shopper. I mean, and that yeah. was, you know, that was the first anti-plastic bag shopping, mm. you know, and it sold out in a heartbeat. We wow. had to cancel the launch in China because there was a riot in Hong Kong. I mean, it was just crazy. So... Though it was a really exciting. I was going to say that, that those things must have been really exciting. Really to work exciting, on. huge. Really good fun to do, and certainly the, the the plastic bag went on to become. You know, there were other things. That I remember being at Glastonbury, and this is not a plastic flag, and this is. You know, there are loads of things spawned from that. Massive, it, it, and they're still it. knocked off today. You can still find them in markets. You know, you can still buy the originals on eBay for you know a couple of hundred pounds. So. Do you have one? Have you got one no, knocking about for a couple of hundred quid? I've got one and I have one here somewhere. Um, yes, I do. Oh, good. Quite a little nest egg. 
I think when we were looking through Eugenie, and we do do a little bit of research on our guests before they before they join us. Uh, not too much. We didn't get the comedian thing, but we got we got we got a, a few bits. Um, we're just seeing that you know you, you touched on it there in the kind of ten ten campaign that you went to work on afterwards, and and then kind of pinching ourselves and going, actually, that was twelve years ago. No. And actually, and so the question, I guess, knowing that you were kind of heavily invested in that at the time, and obviously heavily involved in how that was come came about and also your communication head-on I'm just interested in what your observations are now on on where we are on climate change and what are what have we learned from from 12 years ago and why aren't we seeing the progress that we want to see well I, I mean I think it's absolutely terrifying frankly where we are I don't I think we've all got examples real life examples that we can cite where we feel we can see the world is changing before our eyes you know I went, I went to Spain for a holiday and, you know, we couldn't swim in the med because there were jellyfish. Now, I mean, that could not be more of a first world problem. But to people whose businesses is taking tourists out in boats on the med, you know, it's a massive problem, actually. So, you know, that's one tiny of a billion examples that we all know of, but it's, it's very much in my mind because it's quite recent. I think it is really shocking. And I know there's a lot of very demoralised uh, climate campaigners and um, you know I really admire those that are keeping going but I think the truth is everybody is very very deeply concerned um, and with good reason and mm-hmm. we're just seeing people's people are losing their lives because of events which are very very likely if not you know 100% attributable to climate change I think we it is it's very likely I am a little bit excited at the moment that the Labour Party in this country seems to have grasped finally the opportunity of re-engineering the, the economy around investment in uh, energy sources that are sustainable and good for us, mm. but which also could create jobs. And I'm also excited about the own goal that I think the, the Tory party have kicked in the last few days with the mini budget and the fact that I think, and I, I'm, I'm sure your your podcast is not political and you want to be neutral and I don't want to espouse particularly um, a political position, but I think if you ask the question about climate, you can't really answer it without saying the way the political winds blow is in no small part going to determine if and and the extent to which we are able to turn the ship around. So mm-hmm. from that point of view at the moment, I, I have a tiny bit of hope, but I, I really, I feel just so um, sad for the campaigners who have been slogging away. And I just, I think it's got to be the definition of a thankless task because you see so little. It's so incremental. Mm. And it did feel like it was gathering pace and momentum in about 2019 and there was real progress then. And then, you know, pandemic turns up, everything yeah. goes out the window, doesn't it? Yeah. Totally so, on the back. Yeah, the pandemic was a terrible kind of, you know, well, I think it legitimised probably a whole lot of people making choices that uh, suited their agenda. Mm. Um, so it kind of gave them a kind of head of steam because, you know, we had, had huge, you know, issues and um, financial pressures and, um, all that kind of stuff. Things could take a back seat quite conveniently, perhaps. So I think yeah. it is. And look, I, I don't want to be a doom and gloom. I, you know, there is a lot of great work going on and yeah. a lot of innovation. And as I said, I think politically, the winds are possibly there's a little flutter. So let's mm. see. Yeah. And you, you talk about the med and that changes there being small for that, that is not the case in Australia. You will have friends and family who have been, presumably, have been affected by the last couple of years of... Bushfires, massive, you know, yeah. massive. It's it's just terrible. I mean, one of the things, I I lost my... Um, at this, um, my little dog's about to come in, so I don't know if you want to edit this bit out. But no, bring him not, in. No, bring him in. in. Yeah. Is he a comedian as well? Or... <laughs> she's, not, she's not She's not a comedian, but she does love a little bit of attention. Oh, no, off she goes. Um. Anyway, I... Um, yes, no, in Australia just terrible and I, I lost my house to a bushfire when I was growing up and I know I mean you don't have to have too much imagination I don't think to work out how horrendous it is but whole communities wiped out just shocking but I mean Australia is a country which has the means to support people who go through those dreadful experiences there are terrible things happening on bigger scale in much poorer countries without the means who frankly contributed tiny amounts to the problem relative 
to what we in Australia and, and wealthy countries in Australia. I mean, one of the things that's so shocking to me, having left Australia 20 years ago and looking back at it, is it's kind of like just a big mine these days. It's just being mined and it's it's it just shocking. And there's so much wealth, so many wealthy young professionals who are making huge amounts of money on the extraction industries. And that kind of brings us to the funding network in, in, in good time because one of the things that my colleagues in Australia are looking to do is to find meaningful ways of engaging young wealthy people with high levels of disposable income in charitable giving. And it's a massive opportunity over there to tap into this new kind of seam of wealth yeah. amongst much younger people than used to have this sort of, in Australia at the moment, you could be 33 and be a million, millionaire several times over if you had taken a career in, in, in banking or in, in those sort of areas. So that's the reality, but that tells you just how much wealth there is. You know? Yeah. I think just 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 the final point on the the climate change. I just wanted to give an, a, a little anecdote. I watched with my uh, two youngest children last night, Frozen Planet. Like we're working through Frozen Planet, and we did series two last night, I think, or episode two last night. You know, it was all it had the polar bears in it, and it was talking about the the fact that the the ice caps are melting and the the rate of destruction. And in that innocence, that my daughter was like, she just started asking questions of why. And she was like, why is this happening, Dad? And like I said, well, there's lots of different reasons, but, you know, people are throwing, we're not recycling enough and just kind of keep it quite simple. And she says, she said, she actually said to me, like, why doesn't like the government do something and stop everyone doing certain things? And it was just that innocence of like, well, that is actually part of the answer. Why don't they, they actually do something and take some action? And yeah, I just thought that was, it was actually. Well, and, 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 you know, I think, you know, just to what we were talking about earlier on about how once there is a public mood for something, policy will follow and I think the best hope for the environment is is the younger generation coming up who just say we won't accept this it's just it will be politically toxic to do anything other and and it will be politically toxic the leaders will be of that generation too so sometimes you just have to breed a problem out now the question is whether the timelines (laughs) will align yeah. But I think your children and and my my children they just they just don't get it and and they're not going to be they're not prepared to get it. It's just we yeah. have been brought up in a way and got used to things and accepted orthodoxies. Even though I'm a climate campaigner, I'm still living and benefiting and heating my house. And there is a hypocrisy. I absolutely I recognise and I apologise for, and I'm not able to overthrow that. But I think that the next generation will. Yeah, we should we should look, cover that subject in a bit more detail. We probably covered it here when we, we didn't expect to. But look, Eugenie, we do want to come on to the, the funding network. And, and like we touched on earlier, great idea. Firstly, t- tell us about what, what it is, is the idea. Yeah, tell us about what, what it is. For someone that's listening, thinking the funding network, democratised fundraising, philanthropy, what is it? So let me tell you how it started. It was one man, really, a guy called Frederick Mulder uh, and three of his friends, and they were all very engaged in social change philanthropy. They all had some money. They were all professional. They, you know, had some disposable income, but they were frustrated by the limitations of their individual means to bring about the change that they wanted to see. And they had a sort of shared, they were interested in similar sort of work and projects and approach. And so they said, well, why don't we put our money together and we'll decide together which charities or organisations we support? Because there was also... Back then, you know, Fred had had a bad experience giving some money to an organisation that had subsequently um, gone broke or hadn't sort of panned out, and he was a bit burnt by that. And he wanted to have a peer group that he could make his decisions about his giving with and, and enjoy giving. He wanted, you know, and I think this is one of the really wonderful things, and I'm sure you would agree, we try to make giving public and unbarrassed and, yeah, open and accessible and transparent. And I think certainly in this country, the UK, there is a sort of embarrassment about wealth or a sort of some sort of idea that, you know, it has to be done. Well, I mean, there's both ends of the spectrum. There's some very, very gaudy displays of wealth. and But there is also a lot of people who I think are uncomfortable or embarrassed or don't quite know how to go about it or think there is a discretion is somehow makes a bigger gift if you're discreet about it. It's quite excluding. And I think also there is the idea that, unless you're giving large amounts of money it's not meaningful or small amounts don't matter and then 
that becomes excluding if you if you then you feel like you're not able to participate because you're not giving a large enough month <clears throat> you're not a philanthropist you're not a big donor you are then somehow excluded from being part of the solution which is often due to the fact that you never had the capacity or the ability or the means or the opportunity to earn lots and lots of money or just the, so Fred started this with his three friends and then they reached into their own networks and they invited more people and they decided that they wanted to meet with charities face to face they didn't want to waste a lot of time with charities doing very very long applications they wanted to meet with them they want to hear from them they wanted to ask them questions they wanted to learn about the issue that they were addressing they wanted to increase their own knowledge their confidence and they wanted to give the charities the chance to express themselves face to face recognizing that not every charity can write the best application or has the time or all those sorts of things. So it was just giving charities a different route to raise money and giving donors a different route to learn about and hear from and decide how they give their money and then be energised and ex- excited by this fact that, you know, your £100, I say, you know, £100 at the funding network in the blink of an eye is a £10,000 grant mm. because another 60 people have put in amounts from £10 to you know, 2,000 pounds and sort of everything in between. So that's what we do. We have events which are four or now three charities come along to. They have six minutes to make a pitch. They have about six minutes to answer questions. At the end of that, all three charities leave the room and we have what we call a pledging session, which is a bit like an auction where we take the charities one at a time and you say, right, let's open the bidding. Who's going to give? And the money goes up, 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 up. And uh, we have match funding. Someone says, I'll give £100 if every person who's got a parking ticket in the last year gives £100 or I'll give £50 <laughs> if everyone who's got a dog gives £50 and up they go. Um, we have corporate match funding. So we have companies who send their employees along and their employees have a few thousand pounds that they're able to give away as they choose on the night. And it's just a really great event. It's two and a half hours, two hours long. We have a few drinks and everyone goes home, about 100 people go home, whether they've been the charity presenter or a donor, and everybody is happy, excited, and feels like I can make a difference. People believed in my work. The issue I address matters. I didn't know there was that many people who would just part with their money in a room. I didn't know I could make a pitch. I didn't have the confidence to stand up. Oh, my God, I've got a way of telling my story, which will stand me in good stead for any number of funding conversations in the future. So it's got this, well, as the money, it's this much wider societal Mm. effect on both sides. And, you know, we're very keen to to see ourselves as the connectors of these two vital constituencies. Neither of them can do what they want to do without the other one. It's a level playing field. I really, really react badly having been, you know, I've had to fundraise for my own charities for years. And, you know, it's, it's that cap in hand idea that you're going to someone it's a very unpleasant, uncomfortable feeling. And it was a massive shift for me a few years ago when I went, do you know what? Why am I feeling apologetic? This person is so fortunate to have the opportunity to support this great work that we are doing. If you've, if you've got the story of the evidence of the impact of the value of your doing work you're doing, that's really liberating. When I say that to people, I say, we can see the value of the work you're doing. The impact is evident. You just need to tell people about it. It's Kenneth's turn to get the drinks in this week, so I'm going to let you know that you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Do More Good Pod. Or if you're a professional business person, you can find us on LinkedIn too. There's a website, domoregood.uk, packed full with episodes, blog posts, details of the team, and a link to the newsletter for your VIP content. Coming back, two pina coladas and a lager for me. It sounds like it's a kind of a mix and it says we've got scribbled down here. It's a cross between a TED talk and a friendly dragon's den. And possibly that would upset the purists who are used to writing beautifully crafted applications. But it sounds like really good fun. Look, I would say there is absolutely, I mean, it's not an either or situation here. And the the amounts we're raising, to be really clear, you know, we're raising grants of about £10,000 for three charities. And at the moment, most of them walk away with closer to sort of 18, 20 each. But on the whole, we're trying to raise 10 grand for three charities in one night. So it's not huge amounts of money. But 
the charities we support, I should also say, are small grassroots. You know, that's what we particularly focus on. And again, not neither or, that's the sector we, we particularly like because there is a, a good fit with the level of giving. You know, you can feel that £100 to a charity with a turnover of 200000 is actually meaningful, whereas it wouldn't be to, you know, UNICEF. And we think that there is so much value in organisations which are deeply embedded in their communities, um, harnessing huge amounts of volunteerism, often led by people who, you know, have the lived experience. So they've got a lot of really good qualities. I think small charities, is a, they're very, very dynamic and people really like that. So how do you attract both the, the donors and the, the, the charity themselves to present how so that... we have a membership a core membership and actually there's quite a few people who've been members for 20 years you know we've just about to turn 20 and there's quite a few members who have been with us all the way through including three of the four founders but we have a small but very very committed membership of about 150 individual members and about a dozen corporate members so pretty small really mm-hmm. and they are the sort of foundation of the funds we raise, but our events are open to anyone. And so is other people doing this model? Are others doing this model? Because I think there's more and more sort of variations. You know, the giving circle model, which is what this is, you know, a, a sort of variation of, has been around for years. Giving circles yeah. were, you know, they're very much in the faith communities. In America, they've been widely used. And the term that is now used is collective giving is very much the sort of buzz phrase that's moved the concept into the sort of current moment. And Bill Gates has put a lot of money in the US into an initiative called Philanthropy Together, which is trying to create a sort of explosion of giving circles. So it is really this recognition of the value of raising money that is aggregated from lots and lots of individual contributions that that's very democratic that that's there is a transparency to it whereas large amounts of money being sort of you know of course there is a role for large amounts of money but if we want to have a more democratic level playing field where there is better representation I mean we we have a strand of work where we run three kind of themed events one for the environment one for black-led charities uh, and one for LGBT rights And if you look at the proportion of philanthropic funding, foundation funding that goes to those three issues relative to the size of the issue or population they address, it's tiny. So black-led projects get less than 1%. I think LGBT less than 1%. And yet those populations are much, much bigger than less than 1% of our, our makeup. And we won't redress the balance of the money going there unless we have a much more inclusive mechanism for raising money and for engaging people in giving and we raise awareness of this terrible disparity. I mean, it it really is quite galling in this day and age if you think that pet charities, pet rescue, get more than all those three topics. And we know that. That's something that, you know, those of us working in this, we know this very well, but is it's pretty galling in this day and age and so I like our model because it's bringing ordinary people together to give to get all those sort of benefits I we are funding much more progressive projects we are a more progressive funder and I think you know I hope we will shift the dial what we will play our small part in shifting the dial to, to the need to fund much more broadly and at a much more sort of even level yeah. commensurate with the issue or the group and you talk about um broadening it you've taken it international yeah internationally do you find there are differences different territories are there different approaches different behaviors maybe uh different ways that people talk about it well what's been absolutely beautiful is seeing how replicable this very simple model of bringing people together in a room to hear short timed pictures from charities take questions put your hand up raise the money bar chart goes up end of the night, you've raised this amount of money, everyone goes home, end mm. of. That format has translated into 27 countries. And it's, you know, Australia, Palestine, Bulgaria, Turkey. We've just gone into Latin America, very successful event in Colombia this week, just been. So it's entire, it's incredibly replicable in terms of the format. And it's also very adaptable. So in a small village in Russia, where there have been many events, and actually, you know, I was sent some photos after one event in a small village in Russia, and the woman um, who sent it to me, she said, we don't see smiles on people's faces like this. 
so sad in itself, but this room full of people who were so charged up, but they were raising like, I don't know, maybe 300 pounds each for three charities and the amounts being given were two or three pounds or four or five pounds, the equivalent. So it's entirely, but that amount of money in that context is, is meaningful to the charity, to the organisations that are being funded. So it scales up and down in terms of the amounts to, to work everywhere. So Australia is raising as I just to go back to my point about the extractive industries and the very, very, very wealthy young people there and corporates that are looking to disperse philanthropic funds, they're raising about $200,000 at an event in a heartbeat, more, $250,000, which is a little bit galling as the mothership to <laughs> just want this beautiful child that is, but it's brilliant. It's the same model. Same, you would recognise it there as you do here, as you do in Portugal or any of the other countries. So what's your what's your approach now? To I mean, you talked about scale. We talked about these different territories. But you as an organisation, how do you get more people to embrace this model? Because like hearing you talk about it, like we touched on in the introduction, like James and I have never, we've all obviously become aware of crowdfunding. We've all seen that both in and outside of the charity sector if you've over the last few years but in this model of giving how do you think about the future how can you continue to scale get more people involved put on bigger events go regional across the uk what's what's the plan for yeah you? so there's a, i mean that is the 20 million dollar question and i hope it is 20 million dollars and i hope it's you know quite quick <laughs> um but the the um covid was a great thing for us here in the uk insofar as uh we moved our events online and we delivered them virtually using a platform called Crowdcast and immediately increased the amount we were raising at an event by 60%. And that was sustained over two years. And that is extraordinary. Going out of COVID, we are coming out of the pandemic, we are moving to, like a lot of people, a hybrid model because we don't, we will not sustain ourselves if we're purely virtual. People need connections. Our members like seeing each other. The, the meeting someone who's had a very different life experience to you and saying to them over a cup of coffee afterwards, listen, I didn't want to ask you when you were speaking, but can you just tell me about what it was like in the boat coming over from Iraq? So that is incredibly important, but we will go into a hybrid. And with our first um, virtual event, we immediately got a national footprint. So you know, we got an international footprint and we've had that you know, ever since. So, And then we were able to flow that innovation out through all 26 partners wow. overnight. They didn't all, but most of them were doing virtual events. Some of them doing some fantastic innovation, really, really exciting with the model. So that is an exciting development. We have been, we're a small organisation. We have grown out of a kind of member model. We're quite internal. It wasn't so long ago that we were writing down pledges on flip charts. We now put it into an Excel spreadsheet and some of the old members still say, oh, goodness, look at the tech, look what they're doing now. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so we have been a little bit underpowered in terms of um, that kind of the tech side of things. And, of course, you know, we're, we're technically, you know, in the, in the sector, we are an intermediary. It's not easy to raise huge amounts of investment for the bit at the middle when it is raising money for charities. So next week I'm going to launch an exciting new brand identity for the funding network. And I've already had a few ripples from people saying, really, what, why do you need a brand? Why, why are you spending money? And so there's a very good business case for it, which is we need to grow. And so our members in their incredible, having said that they say, why do you have a new brand? Uh, others gave gave money to a um, fundraising appeal I did last year so that we could invest in our back office. We are still still too manual until we can get a little bit further down the line of digitization. We're not far off. We've spent a lot. We spent quite a lot of time and energy on that. Uh, and until we've got this new brand flowed through the sort of twenty year impact story, which is what I'm telling you, which we haven't had the capacity to go out and tell people. We are so busy. We're so small. All we can do is put on these events and look after these charities. But this is a moment as we turn twenty where we say, "Hey guys, we're in twenty seven countries. This is really big. What's going on?" And I think that will lead to the next round of investment. Um, next year, we'll have a new website. I'm looking at a kind of web platform, which is giving the charities the opportunity, a bit like a TED Talk, to have their six-minute pitch on the website. It can be there for a period of time. People can continue to give it to it after the, the pitch. They can link to it from their own website. Because what charities find is 
the event is a great way of engaging a lot of their supporters. Yeah. You yeah. know, come along, people who are on the fence, and we help them with their fundraising. A lot of them are looking to build in individual donor campaigns. They've got no idea how to do it. So this is a great way to start. Yeah. And we give them kind of fundraising 001 in that. So the potential is immense and it's a really exciting moment. Yeah. You're putting that effort into, into a six-minute presentation, then use it. Use it all Listen, everywhere. Listen, 96% of them say they have got value out of it um, beyond yeah. the pitch. Yeah. And 56% of them say they have raised money as a result of using the content or the confidence yeah. and any number of them have raised money from people they meet at the event who call them up afterwards and say listen I've got a few more questions but and then they get a big grant so mm. but these are really vital skills for small charities that don't have a fundraiser their chief executive hasn't ever probably been a chief executive their brilliance is their experience and knowledge of the issue it's yeah. not necessarily in business development and donor development and we can give them some really good skills in the sort of three months that we're involved with them. And just one final thing, you asked me how we find the charities. The members nominate the charities. Right. Okay. So the members nominate and the members select. And so that's the main benefit of being a member is that you can bring a charity to us. And, you've, and you know, pr- presenting, you've already got a champion in the room. You know that you've, you, know, you don't have to exactly, win people over. You've already completely. And they, make, they have to make the first pledge. They put the first amount of money down. And they also have to stand up and say, hi, you know, I'm Janie. My mum uh, was treated by this small charity when she was having dementia yeah. and they came around and it was amazing. And there's, there's nothing more powerful than a personal testament and someone who's going to put their money where their mouth is. So those things combined, you know, we've, we've got a lot of kind of, if I say clever tricks, they're not tricks, but we look at, I have this, I have this um, view that everybody in the world doesn't want to give away money. We're all looking for reasons not to give away our money, even though we say we want to, but you're pretty, you're pretty happy if something comes up and you think, oh, I was going to give a hundred quid, but you've got to remove all the obstacles to people choosing taking that get out of jail card free mm. uh, because frankly they're looking for it and so yeah that's the challenge we, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's no surprise then Eugenie that I think again kind of going back to the start of the conversation and you talked about kind of PR and comms is where you started and and actually you're now working for a storytelling an, an organization yeah. that gives platform for people to storytell yeah. and 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 I think that's the amazing thing about it right is we all love a good story and if we hear a good story we're more willing to support that story because we understand the characters and the journey that they're on and I think that's a brilliant idea I can see I can see it now you know kind of Ted Ted would be a great sponsor right I don't know what the, what, right. what they you know as some kind of showcase of all these small charities because I'm sure James and I'm sure I can speak for both of us the amount of small charities that just fly under the radar that do such good work I mean we've had quite a few small charities represented on here over over the years and they all struggle to kind of know how to really package their story to put it in front of an audience but what you're talking about gives them a a ready-made asset that they can then go out and 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 build a whole fundraising campaign around exactly and and that's what um, has happened in quite a lot of the countries they are giving them that we just haven't had the capacity but they are giving them that little asset and then saying, do a two-week online campaign with your supporters after the event, that kind of thing. But, you know, I'm really excited about because we're now doing hybrid events and because um, we are recording the pictures as well as, you know, them being delivered live, we have them. So we've got this great asset to edit into a slightly tighter, maybe take out any good bits or put a sting on it or or, take any errors or anything like that. Probably won't have to do very much and then post it uh, onto this great web platform. So, you know, I, I, and that will be another asset for them. And another, what it is, it's, um, it's an endorsement. It's not just that they did a good job, it's the endorsement. And they all leave saying, I can't believe 60 people just said what you do matters, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so the endorsement is huge. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, nice. Have I talked, fantastic. Have I talked your ears off? No, it's brilliant. I, I want to. I want to come. I think we should. Come I don't. I don't get out much. Well, I'll be sending you invitations and plaguing you to come. And the great thing is, you don't even have to come because you could watch it from the comfort of your own home with a non-alcoholic. Oh no, we want to. We want to come. We're <laughs> we sick. Of, we're yeah. st- sick. But of it is great home. to come and to see and mm. you know, yeah. I think yeah, I can, I can imagine the energy and the power and the, just in the room. 
it kind of captures the event and that's hard to replicate over zoom we all know that after the last few years and so yeah i can imagine that 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 feel good factor really kind of comes you think you think kenneth is good looking over zoom you should you should see (laughs) this guy in real life honestly (laughs) Oh, it's well, these filters, these Zoom filters all, are working wonders. Yeah, we're all good looking over Zoom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, look, Eugenie, thank you so much for giving us that background. We're not going to, um, and, and hearing the story and, and delving into to kind of your background as well, it's, I'm sure people will listen and kind of explore it. And if anyone wants to join, can they do that on the Absolutely. website and come to the next Go to event? the website. There are details of um, all the events on the website. Anybody can come um we've never had a problem not being able to accommodate people but maybe in the future that will happen i should say there is never any pressure to give so i'm very keen that people know they can come and you know you won't feel awkward or embarrassed if you don't choose to give and we say that it's really important that 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 people don't feel that pressure but equally people genuinely do and quite often they come along and they say oh I read the material and I thought I was really going to like this organization but in the event I was very drawn to that and I'm so surprised by it so you know it's it's a very stimulating experience where you'll hear from three very different organizations you know what as, I'm, as, as you're talking to it about about it I can I'm thinking back to a conversation I had with a friend of mine recently who went on a golf day and at the end of the golf day of course they went to the dinner and then there was the the typical auction where everyone bought a pile of shit for a load of money where like none of it went to probably the charity or very small percentage of it as an after dinner proposition to say we're going to bring three charities in then you can decide how to give your money and then the room and the energy and people outbidding and of course it's going to be that you know people kind of macho and trying to kind of put themselves out there but yeah I can see this as kind of finding a home in that in that we do um we are seeing ourselves as the sort of thinking person's gala um, mm. I think a lot of people are fed up with the huge amounts of money the time and all that we we can be in and out in 90 minutes mm. and you know we are doing an event for the sage foundation actually um a sort of what we're calling white label and I think there's huge potential here mm. for that too um, and it's an in-house internal event for their offices all around the country to take part in a virtual event. Sage Foundation has got a pot of money. They want their employees to give it away. They will match any employee giving. Employees have nominated the charities um, and employees have selected the charities. We've coached the tra- charities. We will run the event. We will do the pledging. We will process the money. We will make the grant. We will do the due diligence. We will do the um, impact monitoring and all that kind of stuff. They pay us a fee at that you know, small fee. And on that occasion, we are kind of in the background. It's powered by the funding network. It's called the Sage Foundation's Big Give Live. And I think there's going to be a lot of that because the employee engagement piece is something that a lot of companies are looking at, particularly post-pandemic, remote working. How do we get people involved in initiatives which help them remember the sort of company they work for? Um, So I think there's a lot of potential there. But I also think in the live event space fundraising space it can be a drinks event it can be six to eight thirty people can go for dinner afterwards pretty time efficient way of, of moving moving money around yeah. yeah company can say we will put the first 25k up we need to match it in the room tonight mm. double your money mm. yeah no i'm sure your passion will drive it forward Eugenie. It's coming through the screen in, in bucket loads, but we're not going to let you go without um, some quick fire questions that we always drop in at the end of uh, the podcast episodes. So I'm going to hit you with the first one. If you could transport yourself back in time and meet your 20-year-old self, what piece of advice would you give and why? I think I'd say you, and this is a little bit sad, I think I'd say, you know, you've got a lot more to offer than you think you do at this point in time have a bit more confidence in yourself a bit earlier on because you, there's there's a lot of good in there and you've got a lot to offer and take a chill pill. Nice. nice. Yeah. Uh, second question for you. Can you tell us about one life hack or productivity skill uh, habit that you have taught yourself possibly recently that you think everybody needs to know about? Um, I have got... Uh, I've increased my work productivity by um, embracing something that I always felt a bit guilty about. Um, and it, this sort of emerged during the pandemic. But working at my desk, being on a screen, I was finding I was getting very fatigued. Who wasn't? And I would find myself um, wandering to websites that, well, social media a little bit, but then other things and a little New York Times and get going down. And I felt used to, I felt really guilty about it. But then I was like, I noticed that when I came back from it, I was really energised 
and I felt a lot better. So now I actually consciously allow myself to have, and I, I look at it, I say 10 minutes. I mean, 10 minutes of just, you know, looking and grazing and um, on the internet. I really enjoy it. I'm going to look at some clothes I might buy. And rather than feeling guilty about it, I embrace it. And then I go back and I say, right, I'm going to do another hour or so or nine, whatever I think the task I'm doing would need. Mm. Um, and then I give myself that time. And um, actually just this sort of mental shift in saying, let yourself do it and enjoy it. Put a time limit on it and then come back to it. It's been really, really good. I, it's yeah, and, yeah. and because the negative, I was getting very negative. I was feeling guilty, and that was making the work even more stressful. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, okay, last question. So, as a podcast that is focused around people doing more good, what's your favourite story or inspiring individual that you've met on your journey recently who has done something good for others? And you must have hundreds of examples. <laughs> wow, yes. It's a difficult one. That's really difficult. Wow. So I know you can edit out long pauses, so I'm just going to... It's all right, the pauses make it. You can see your brain racking through and all yeah. of those. Like, how do you pick yeah. one? You know it's difficult. Um. So Iwana Traster, I met through the work we do in Romania. She was working for a nonprofit over there and we were working together for her to be part of the team that was taking our model to Romania where it's been and been hugely successful. And she was young, early 20s. And after a few years, she moved to Brussels. She got a job and uh, she was working in Brussels and she wrote to me and she said, it turn, turns out there's quite a large Romanian, young professional Romanian community in Brussels, and we're all very, very motivated to support uh, what's happening in Romania and, you know, the need for still post-communist development and, you know, progressive um, initiatives and, you know, such a sort of a long way to go for that country. And they were so motivated. And so she said, could we use your model to start a giving circle based on your model? We'll call it the Brussels Romanian Diaspora Funding Network. Um, and we would like to raise money for projects in uh, Romania. And they partnered with, they got a fiscal sponsor, um, in Brussels to process the money. And that has been going, I think, now for maybe six events, five or six events that have raised, um, I'm going to get it wrong, but I think in the vicinity of maybe 150,000 euros, like a serious amount of money when I tell you it is all led by volunteers. There is not a cost associated with it. But what is more astonishing is that has inspired chapters of Romanian professional professionals in Helsinki, Milan, Barcelona, uh, one in the US, I can't remember where, London, and one other place that I can't remember, but maybe six or seven chapters doing these events, repatriating ah. funds back to uh, Romania. And these are all young professionals, I would say ages 28 to 36, um, all doing it in their spare time. The, the European events bring speakers from Romania to the events and the organizers pay the travel costs of these of the speakers yeah. and the speakers are accommodated in you know they have they have them in their homes you know and um, they look after them and it's it's astonishing wow. and so that's I'm so excited about our model enabling that and um, supporting them in our small way and it's just that thing and just bringing it back to the park run it's when a really good model can engage really good people. Yeah. <laughs> and that thing together, Parkrun is a very simple model, but you need the people. Mm. And I can only imagine how satisfying the Parkrun experience must be for those people who founded that to think it has harnessed so much goodwill. It is having such a positive impact. Yeah. And, you know, this is in our small way what I see happening with the Romanians. And I've got to tell you, the, the food at the <laughs> events is off the scale. They know how to cater and it's all, they all make it themselves. It's this beautiful food and beautiful Romanian wine. So it's they're very special. So any Romanians listening um, who are interested in being connected with that network, um, please get in touch via our website. It goes to show how fantastically scalable this is as well. So, People can absolutely. just take it and run with yeah. this idea. It's brilliant. Yeah. yeah it's amazing well Eugenie yeah. look we'll we'll let you go thank you so much for your time thank you for for your energy and and for telling us that story I hope it helps and I'm sure lots of people listening will be checking out the website and seeing how they can get involved and looking at when the next event is and um 
yeah, it's been brilliant. Um, James, have you got any final thoughts before we let Eugenie go? Um, one one bit that really jumped out at me that I really loved was the idea of the matched giving. So if everybody who owns a dog gives £10 or everyone <laughs> parking ticket gives £10, if we could do that with do more good listeners in the room, then uh, yeah, we've made £30. No trouble at all. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. Thank you, Eugenie. We'll let you go. My Take pleasure. Care. Thank you both so much for your interest. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Just before we go, can we ask a favour? If you've enjoyed this episode and you've made it this far after all and you want to help us reach more people and attract more guests, then we'd love a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you haven't got anything nice to say, then say it in an email. Get in touch at contact at domoregood.uk and let us know how we can improve the show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another story of someone doing more good. 